Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 18, Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs. It took a few seconds for the absurdity of this statement to sink in. Then Ron voiced what Harry was thinking. You're both mental. Ridiculous, said Hermione faintly. Peter Pettigrew's dead, said Harry. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Caspar Terkyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. In October of 2016, a man called Mohamedou Slahi was released from Guantanamo Bay after 14 years of isolated imprisonment and torture. And throughout those 14 years, the U.S. government never charged him with a single crime. I've just finished reading his book, Guantanamo Diary. And in the book, he gives this unflinching account of what life is like in Guantanamo Bay, the ways in which he was tortured, the ways in which guards extracted false information from him using sleep deprivation and physical and emotional humiliation. But he also shares the ways in which, even though he's in this very isolated place, he ends up building these unexpected relationships with some of the guards, especially by learning how to play chess. And what struck me about Slahi's story and other prisoners like him, you know, people like Nelson Mandela or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was of course, the absolute cruelty of the isolation that they have to endure, but also the incredible spirit of resilience that somehow they're able to draw on to make it through the most inhuman conditions. And I think part of that is the fact that the isolation that they're experiencing isn't always complete. You know, we think of Nelson Mandela's relationship that he builds with the guards where he learned to love rugby. So he had something to talk about. And the fact that those very guards were present at his inauguration as president of South Africa. And so as we think about this theme of isolation, I couldn't help but think of Sirius, of course, and his experience in Azkaban, but also Pettigrew and his existence as a rat and the reasons why we isolate people and the experience of it. And so I'm really excited to dig into this theme together today, Vanessa. Casper, I think that the crux of all questions about pain and suffering is how quickly do we move to the positive aspects of it? How much time do we spend thinking about the people who never emerge from isolation, which the text handles really well. We know that there are people who have suffered the Dementor's kiss and are just inside their own bodies trapped forever. But then on the flip side, when do we move to stories of hope and why do we do that? So I think, yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you about this as well and and solve that problem because that's what we'll do in a half hour episode. 
No problem. Oh, yeah, that's what we do. We just fix big problems. Suffering? Don't worry about it. We got it covered. Environmental disaster? We'll fix it. Hey, I'll tell you other things we'll do in short amounts of time. A 30-second recap. And it's your turn to go first. This is probably the easiest chapter ever. Oh, that's so funny. I think even though it's short, it's like nearly impossible. It's so short, but so much happens. Well, let's see how you do. Are you ready? Yes. Three, two, one, go. So um, everybody is incredulous. They're like, wait, what? Wormtail isn't alive? And um, Lupin is like, that's not true. Scabbers is Wormtail. And Sirius is like, I want to kill him. And Ron and Hermione and Harry are like, you guys are freaking insane. And then Lupin tells this whole story about how he's a werewolf and how Sirius and um, the other guys used to help him um, deal with the fact that he was a werewolf. And then at the very end, Snape comes in and it turns out the Wormtail has killed everybody. Wow. I was stressed going in and I got in my own head. Okay, yeah, sure. There's a line in the chapter where Lupin's like, there are parts of it even I don't understand. And I'm like, yes. That's yes, how I Remus. Feel. <laughs> On your mark, get set, go. This chapter is all about Lupin's exposition of what used to happen. We learn who Mooney, Wormtail, Pubfoot, and Prongs are, that they made the map, that that's how he knows that Peter Pettigrew is alive and hidden in the scabber's body. Sirius is like, okay, Lupin, you can explain everything while I, like, just still look, you know, guiltily at that mouse rat thing. Um, And so Lupin explains all about Harry's dad, who apparently was not only an amazing Quidditch player, but also an amazing wizard. And then Snape comes in and has been making the potion all the time and he was hiding under the invisibility cloak and there it is. And I just wanted to talk about that. I had forgotten that there was a piece of the Whomping Willow that Pettigrew, who would turn into a rat, would hit so everyone could safely get into the tunnel to go to the Shrieking Shack. Yeah, like Crookshanks does now. Right? I'd just forgotten that. that was oh, cool. interesting that it used to be a rat and now it's a cat. Oh, what does that mean? Hmm. Answers on a postcard. So, Vanessa, I want to start with Sirius because I think that's probably the most obvious experience of isolation that we're engaging in this chapter He's been so isolated. He's been kept away from people he loved, not only physically, but also emotionally, right? Everyone thinks he's guilty of this crime that he didn't commit. And so I think his realm of who he has emotional space for has really shrunk. And he only has one goal. All he cares about is killing Pettigrew. And Lupin is, in comparison, is much more focused on the others. So Sirius is like, I don't care about explaining myself. I don't care about people knowing the full story. This is my mission. And like everyone else just needs to deal with it. While Lupin is much more, oh, everyone needs to understand. Let me tell you the whole story. He says Harry deserves an explanation. And he says Peter's been Ron's pet. He understands the relational implications. And so it just struck me that I think the experience of isolation in some ways can limit our realm of care, if that makes sense. But then at the same time, you know, just reading some people's stories who have gone through the most horrific isolation and imprisonment, sometimes it also leads to this incredible expansion of compassion. So I'm just really interested in how do we think isolation impacts us? I think first I want to just make space for the fact that there are a lot of people who don't survive isolation at all, right? Only the survivors get to write the books, and as inspiring as those books are, I think it's just important that we leave space for Sirius's cellmates who didn't survive. But then as far as how people respond to isolation, I think that we all respond differently, and I think it's really important for us to try hard to not judge various people's reactions. 
And that is coming from my grandparents, as our listeners will know, are all Holocaust survivors. And they did not all emerge kind, whole, hugely empathetic people. In a lot of ways they did, and they instilled those values in me, but in a lot of ways they didn't. And so not everybody emerges from, you know, a concentration camp as Elie Wiesel with this, like, expansive view of what our responsibility is now that we know this evil exists. And I think it's our job to accept victims as they are and to bear witness and obviously hold them accountable for their actions. But also, I think the onus is on us to welcome people back from isolation which is why Lupin, I think, does such a beautiful job in this moment. I love that point, Vanessa, and I think you're exactly right. Lupin, as we talked about last week, kind of without even words being said, welcomes Sirius, acknowledges his mistake in not trusting Sirius. He's making space for Sirius in such a generous way. And of course, Lupin has had his own experience of isolation, right? When he is bitten and becomes a werewolf, I mean, the language is so interesting in this chapter that kind of mirrors disease and infection. And it just found it fascinating the way in which when he's then isolated, Lupin then attacks his own body, right? The text tells us that he's biting himself so as not to bite others. It's this really stark language. Yeah, I think that this chapter speaks to the politics of isolation and how complicated the web has to be in order to appropriately isolate someone and then welcome them back. Once someone is isolated, it requires an enemy to make you potion. It requires your three friends to illegally become part-time animals. It takes building a whole system with a whomping willow and a shack in order to isolate them. It requires creating like a mythology around the shack in order to isolate them. This just seems like such an unnatural thing that so much effort needs to go into it. Wow. I hadn't even thought about that. Dumbledore spreads rumors about the fact that this place is haunted. Oh, yeah. There's like spin happening. Right, right. There's a whole PR campaign. But I want to pick up on what you said about the three friends joining him, because that really struck me in the text this time that literally Lupin becomes less dangerous when he is joined by his friends. And that to me was just so powerful. I mean, the fact that when he wasn't alone, he became like a less dangerous wolf. I just thought that was beautiful. And it's worth saying, like, Lupin's story is not unfamiliar. I mean, if we look at public health data now, it's remarkable. Like, social isolation is a bigger indicator of mortality. Like, it's more dangerous than smoking or obesity even, right? So, like, if you don't have those connections, those those relationships of support and trust, you're more likely to die. Oh, absolutely. And as someone who deals with depression and isolates when I'm depressed. And to some extent, I'm like re-energizing and getting sort of ready to go out in the world. But when friends and family do sort of force their way in in meaningful ways, it can often be really healing. Sometimes I'm like, nope, I am too broken right now. Just get away from me. But there are other times where As I've spoken to before, like other people just pushing their way through is absolutely the most healing thing. There is still, as we've talked about before on the podcast, a lot of evidence that suggests that Lupin isn't quite fully healed or or he's not quite comfortable with who he is and what he's done. I mean, there's a whole passage where he's 
talking about how he's not really been honest with Dumbledore about a couple of things, especially that Sirius can transform into this dog. And, you know, he says, I sometimes felt guilty about betraying Dumbledore's trust, of course. And his face hardens and there was self-disgust in his voice. So it's such a complex thing, right? Like, yes, there's healing and connection and there's still this self-loathing or self-distrust. I don't know. Yeah, and that is sad, except... I judge him. He should have told Dumbledore I agree. about Sirius being an animagus. That is an incredibly relevant and important piece of information when he knows that Sirius keeps breaking into the castle. Sirius could have killed Ron. Sirius slashed the portrait in this like completely violent way. And Lupin at the time thought that Sirius was guilty. And it's not like he's protecting anyone else because James is dead. Peter, he thinks, is dead. Right. And for what? So that Dumbledore doesn't know some weird secret? But I think this is, okay, that's really interesting. Because on the one hand, yes. But if you already have something that that is incriminating in some way, like any other piece of weakness is going to have double the impact. I, I get that. Absolutely. Especially, and now that I'm thinking about it more... Lupin's livelihood is super on the line, right? He might be worried that, ugh, I'm already hard to employ. Like, this wolf bane happened. Now if he finds out this, he's going to sack me, right? right? Like, it's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Lupin tells us that he has struggled to survive, right? Like, he was looking for any sort of paid work. But I still think that he should have told Dumbledore. It's really hard for me to judge somebody who's like housing insecure and food insecure for not being brave. And so I understand why Lupin is not a trusting person. The world has isolated him and betrayed him for something that he's a victim of. He got bitten as a small child and he is now, you know, shunned. But I just I find it very disappointing that he doesn't tell Dumbledore. And, you know, I think we see that part of Lupin's stay actually through the books, you know, his unwillingness to be with Tonks and his fear of raising a child. Like that also speaks to that. He's not quite fully trusting of himself. And I think in part because he's had to isolate himself, like isolation for Lupin equals safety and connection equals danger, which I'm just reminding myself is also Harry's challenge, right? Like Harry is able to make that transition through these seven books, right? He starts off being like, well, why would anyone want to be with me? Why would you join me on this like near death adventure? And at the end, like he trusts that people want to be with him and he trusts his capacity to be with them. And that's something, yeah, like Lupin never makes, but Harry does. Yeah. And it makes sense to me that Harry makes a more full recovery from his isolation than Lupin does given that at the end of the books, he's able to entirely expel Voldemort and the Horcrux from him, Mm. whereas Lupin is never able to expel being a werewolf, right? It's a chronic thing that he cannot be healed from. And so it makes sense that he doesn't make it as far. And again, I think that it's our job, sort of as Dumbledore does, to just like love him and welcome him back in in this really radical way. Although the argument can be made that Dumbledore is risking a lot of students' lives too. So Vanessa, where else did you see isolation come up as a theme in this chapter? Well, you hinted at it, so I'm going to just steal your idea. But we have to talk about scabbers. Yes. So Peter Pettigrew has lived as a rat for 13 years. 
And I'm just fascinated by animagi in general. It seems like most animagi do this illegally, right? Because these three kids did it illegally. And then we're going to find out later that Rita Skeeter is also an illegal animagi. And only, according to Hermione, only a handful of people have been registered as an animagus in the last century. So it makes me really curious about the life of an animagus. Like, are you fully conscious the way that a human being is? I mean, we know that McGonagall as a cat was able to, like, really watch over Harry. And, you know, and Sirius was able to do a lot of things as a dog. But it's also how Sirius, like, avoided the Dementors because he wasn't totally a human being. So I'm just wondering what it is like for Peter Pettigrew to live in this, like, absolute isolation amongst the Weasleys for so long. Also, how did he become the Weasley's rat? That is a piece of fan fiction I want to read. I mean, I'm going to give Pettigrew some credit. Like, he has picked a good family to be a pet for. Like, who doesn't want to live in the burrow? I'm like, Peter, I get it. Well, you would even like he used to be Percy's rat. (gasps) I had totally forgotten that. (laughs) It's just hard to hate Pettigrew right in this moment because I feel so bad for him. But don't worry. I'll come around. He also self-isolates because he chooses a life of evil. That's what I find so interesting because, like, he has spent all this time with the Weasleys, right? He's been in a familial, loving environment. I would have thought in this state of isolation surrounded by love where he is even being loved, fair enough, as a pet, maybe that would unharden his heart, but apparently not. I mean, I think that Pettigrew is just someone who's always out for himself and is a coward. And so rather than using this as an opportunity to make amends, he's just so scared of the fact that he would go to Azkaban. He killed 12 people. He's already chosen a life sort of on the dark side, so he has to stay. It's not like the wizarding world would welcome him back with open arms after everything he's done. Well, and this is where it gets all complicated because, you know, on the one hand, It's not as if I want to send everyone to Azkaban, right? Like, that's not what justice looks like. So we've got no good solution here. I mean, this is why I'm always so inspired by the stories of community justice. You know, if Pettigrew or Sirius, for that matter, had been given the opportunity to reintegrate into relationship in some way and had to confront the reality of the pain he had caused by hearing the stories of people's lives that they'd impacted... You know, I think that's what was so beautiful about, for all its problems, the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa and now elsewhere, where people who have committed horrific crimes have to listen to the reality and listen to the stories of what they've done. And so often their own humanity comes forth in that. And even if it doesn't, like, at least they've had to see what they've done. And I think Pettigrew is self-isolating not only by being a rat, but he's also refusing in any way to give himself the chance of healing from the choices he's made. Because I don't want to live with the assumption that people are just evil. Even in Pettigrew, there's something good. I didn't mean to say that he's evil. I mean that he's chose to betray Lily and James all those years ago. And that choice has a lifelong series of repercussions that he now can't go back on. And right. And I certainly think that people can make mistakes and that society holds people to account too harshly in most situations and that we don't take each other's humanity into account when doling out punishments and judgments. But we see Pettigrew never make the courageous, brave, right, good, loving choice. Which he could do in this chapter, right? He could not remain a rat and say, yes, it's me. You found me. 
I felt horrifically for the last 13 years. I'm so sorry. Right. He doesn't do that. He makes the same mistake that he's made before and, and stays this cowardly murderer. Really? Yeah. Vanessa, it's time for our spiritual practice, and we're continuing with Florilegia, the wonderful monastic practice of putting together different pieces of text, little sparklets that have struck us from the chapter this week. And I want to ask you to read what you chose. I chose just four words. Even I don't understand. Mm. Mm. I chose, it was planted because I had come to Hogwarts. Okay, so those two next to each other are, even I don't understand. It was planted because I had come to Hogwarts. So why did you choose yours? It cracks me up as a sentence. (laughs) (laughs) I just think it's so funny. So it's Lupin says that there are parts of what happened that even he doesn't understand. I think that it's such an obnoxious sentence of like, even I don't understand. Like, (laughs) Lupin, why would you understand everything that happened? You were just given this information a minute ago. But then it's also this, like, generous thing of admitting that he doesn't understand something and being like, I'm the one talking right now. I'm the teacher. I'm the authority. But I don't understand either. Right. That's how I read it, which is this, like, beautiful, (laughs) like, humble moment of saying, you know, even though I'm in charge, like, even I don't understand everything. It also, to me, sounds like a sort of, prayer moment that you open yourself to something outside of yourself is when you don't understand, when you're supposed to understand. Mm. And you're like, this is my life. This is my child. This is my whatever. And even I don't understand, like, I don't know what to do. Especially if moments of such stress, right? Like when everything is falling apart, I don't know, like you just say, oh, help. Right. And I feel like I talk to a lot of people right now who feel called to social activism and are like, but I don't understand what I can possibly do. And the only thing I can think to say is we have to get ourselves ready so that when the moment comes, we're ready to fight. And I feel like that is what this moment is in the Shrieking Shack. It's everybody exchanging information and getting ready to a large extent for the battle that is to come. There's relationship building and truth telling and, you know, values are being asserted of, no, the children still have to understand even when we have things to do. So, yeah, I thought... It was a complicated sentence that made me think about a lot of things. So what about you? Why did you pick it was planted because I had come to Hogwarts? I thought this was just fabulous. You know, I've read Harry Potter a number of times, but I'd kind of forgotten that the Whomping Willow had been planted because of Lupin and the fact that he needed this kind of safe escape. And it just reminded me that when we look around, you know, whether it's the grounds of Hogwarts or our own houses or the streets of a city or or farmland, There are so many stories in why things have been put in a certain place. Like, why is this building here? Why does the road bend there? You know, there's just this fabulous story that came out this week of nuns building a chapel on top of an area of land that is proposed for a pipeline, which they object to. And so this building has been put here to stand against this damaging piece of infrastructure. I just I love that idea of thinking about the landscapes that we look at and all the hidden stories that are in them. That's so beautiful. And that is not what I read. But can I tell you what it made me think of? Yeah. 
One of my favorite lines in any movie ever is from Men in Black 2. Oh, my God. Where this woman finds out that she's like a goddess of a minor planet. And Tommy Lee Jones is explaining to her the impact that she has on the world. And he says, did you ever notice what happens to you when it rains? And she says, oh, I always cry when it rains. And he says, it rains because you're crying. And I just thought it was the most beautiful thing about like the world responding to us and sort of meeting us where we are and those moments in which you're like, I need a break and a break just like comes your way. And that's what this line reminded me of, of like it was planted because I had come to Hogwarts. It reminded me of Men in Black too. So let's try and put these sparklets next to each other. And I like what we've been doing recently of changing the order. So, okay, I'm going to read mine first and then yours. It was planted because I had come to Hogwarts. Even I don't understand. Is there anything in the relationship between those two that strikes you? Yeah, I mean, based on your explanation of why you chose this quote, I think it speaks to the mystery of the world around us that we don't know why buildings were built the way that they are and that there's so much intention and beauty in the human-made world too. And I think that I tend to focus on the destruction and the ugliness of what humanity has done. But these two you know, senses, I think, speak to like, I can live in a building for 50 years and not understand everything about it, which we definitely know in terms of Hogwarts. But it's like, even I don't understand, you know, that it was planted for X, Y, and Z reason. What about you, Casper? Should I read it to you? Yes, Do you please. want it in you, me order or me, you order? Oh, I would like it in um, whichever order you prefer. Okay. I think I should go first. Even I don't understand. It was planted because I had come to Hogwarts. Oh, that's funny. So reading it that way around, I had first thought of them as one is answering and one is questioning, right? Even I don't understand. It's like, I don't know. And the other one is saying, well, here's why. But reading it that way around, even I don't understand. It was planted because I came to Hogwarts. It makes the second one into an uncertainty. And that's connecting for me, to the way in which Lupin sees himself in this space, right? He was there as a student and had that whole history of needing to be isolated every month, inventing stories to keep that a secret. And now as a faculty member, he still has to be looked after and isolated, even though he's a friendly little wolf, you know, on his office floor. And so I feel like some of those original challenges and questions haven't really been solved necessarily. Like it's still a question for Lupin as we've talked about this episode. The other thing that it does is that it turns that answer into another question of, you know, maybe there were more reasons than just this reason why the Whomping Willow was planted. You know, maybe Sprout has just always wanted a Whomping Willow in the grounds and just hadn't been able to convince anyone to put a dangerous, you know, man-beating plant. Or Hagrid. Or Hagrid. Probably Hagrid <laughs> found it as a little Sproutling and was like, look what I found, a dangerous, terrifying plant that's ready to wreak havoc on our students. We should have it in the grounds. And then as soon as he meets Lupin, he's like, look, 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 a reason. <laughs> I love it. We never know the full reasons why any of us do anything. Yeah, maybe Dumbledore was like, listen, if I get that passage out to the outside world, that's where I can do my secret drag performance. What is Dumbledore's drag name? Oh, that's a good question. Send in suggestions, harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. Or tweet at us. Or tweet at us. Oh my gosh. This is going to be amazing. 
This week's voicemail is from Keely Harris. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. I'm Keely from Atlanta, and I just finished listening to your episode on imagination. And I wanted to talk a little bit about imagination versus escapism. So my favorite book that I read a while ago for school is Life of Pi. And we talked a lot in my class about how the majority of that book is Pi escaping the reality of his situation by using his imagination and by using all these fictional characters. And up until then, I had always prided myself on being an extremely imaginative person, always having stories going on in my head, just never the discipline to write them down and actually create something. But ever since I was a child, I've always had all of these magical or fictitious fantasies. And that class made me really think about, am I trying to escape normal life in favor of a more fanciful life that I can control uh, rather than being controlled by my own situation or life itself. And I was just wondering your thoughts on that. Keely, I think it's such a smart question to ask because I I do think there is a difference. But the way you describe the imagination that you have of stories and characters and situations, for me, that sounds like a wonderful thing. And I think that if it's helping you, you know, make it through a difficult time, or if it's part of a practice of imagining a better world, you know, I think about science fiction, I think about Octavia Butler and the ways in which she was combating racism by creating different worlds. Like that to me, You could read it as escape, but it's this radical imagination which pushes the real world forward. So I think if you're in some way connecting the imagination into your everyday experience, to me, that's a very powerful thing. So I'm all about it. Yeah, and I think that, one, you're just making up for the lack of imagination of most people. So keep going. And the other question maybe to ask yourself is, is this negatively impacting other parts of my life or somebody else? And if the answer is no, then I think it's just a great skill to build. I mean, that is the line that I always try to ask myself, you know, I love cake. And what is the right line between enjoying cake and negatively impacting my body with cake? And I feel like the same is true for imagination, right? We need this skill. We need cake. And as long as you're not negatively impacting yourself or anybody else, keep it up. Casper, now is the time in the episode in which we each get to bless someone. I'm just going to start with the reach of a blessing. So not in these pages, but always worthy of a blessing, Minerva McGonagall. She might be the, like, only living or one of the only living legal animagi in the world. We know that there are only seven on register. I personally know of four illegal ones. And I just think that Minerva McGonagall is the type of woman who, if she was on a road trip in like rural California, even if she hadn't seen another car for hours and it was three in the morning, she would still stop at that stop sign and would be like, safety first, Potter, or whatever. People say that real character is how you behave when no one is watching. And Minerva could totally get away with being an unregistered animagus, but she wants to be able to teach about transfiguration. And she has all of these reasons, including her integrity. And I just want to bless her for having such a wonderful character. 
So, Casper, who would you like to bless this week? I feel like I have to bless Lupin. I mean, we learn so much about him and his story. And the thing that I really caught my eye was he has lived for so long at the margins of society, really struggling financially, struggling to find paid work, struggling to have people trust him and invest in him and believe in him. And so I guess for anyone who is struggling with money right now or is struggling to find work that they really want to do, um, this blessing is for Lupin and for you. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Please join me and Ariana for a community class, old-fashioned style, in Chicago on Thursday, August 10th at 7 p.m. at the Harold Washington Library. And then join me in St. Paul, Minneapolis on Sunday, August 13th at 9 a.m. at Peace Coffee for a meetup and we'll do some Lectio Divina. You can also join us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and Facebook. And you can always leave us a review on iTunes and send us a little voicemail with a blessing to Harry Potter sacred text at gmail.com. Next week, we'll be reading chapter 19, The Servant of Lord Voldemort, and we're returning to the theme of mercy. This episode was produced by Ariana Nedelman, Vanessa Zoltan, and me, Casper Terkyle. Our music is by Ivan Paisal and Nick Boll, and we are part of the Panoply Network, where you can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. Thanks to Keely Harris for this week's voicemail, Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, and Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you all next week. Bye. So I had a cockroach in my apartment last week. Was that you? Yes. I'm unregistered. (laughs) (laughs) Do you really think I'd be a cockroach? I don't know. They're very, you know, they can survive anything. I feel like that's you. Aww. I feel like I'd be a duck. (laughs) Just quack, quack, quack. Yeah, waddle. All day long. Waddle, waddle, quack, quack. (laughs) Yeah.